0: Hello, and welcome to Down with the Patriarchy. I'm Ben Richards. And
1: I'm Elia J.O. He's as white and male as they come.
0: And she, well, she isn't. But together, we're hoping to explore those marginalised composers we don't know so well.
1: That's right.
0: So, episode four?
1: Episode four? I can't believe we're on episode four. Yes.
0: we, man- we managed to get to episode four. And... This is our first British composer today, and our first male composer today. Yeah,
1: I was thinking that. That's quite exciting. Should we say who it actually is?
0: Well, yes, probably. That would be a good idea.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so today we are doing Samuel Coleridge-Taylor.
0: Yes, Samuel Coleridge-Taylor, British composer from the late 19th to early 20th century. Yes. Yeah. Um, he was only 37 years old when he died. He died of acute pneumonia, which isn't particularly nice. So he does have at least have the, the classic uh, composer's polite story, like so many great romantic composers did. But you probably haven't heard of him unless you are one of those people that have. So I'm going to go through a little bit about him and his compositional life and all the rest of it. And then we'll get into a discussion about some of the issues around um, how he's been perceived and that kind of stuff.
1: Sounds very good to me.
0: So... Samuel Courage Taylor was a Londoner. He was born in Hoborn in 1875. His father was from Sierra Leone, I believe. Dr. Daniel Peter Hughes Taylor. So there's a, little bit of, there's a little bit of confusion about his parentage because he never met his father and there's some interesting things on his birth certificate. His mother is given different maiden names and, and all these things. It's a bit confusing. But basically, as far as we're aware, He had a father who was born in Sierra Leone and then went back to Africa, so he never really met him. As a result, obviously, Samuel Coleridge-Taylor is going to be rather different to many of his peers at this time because it's the late 19th century and he's black. And so that does have connotations for him and in his career. But what's quite interesting is that from the off, he was very fortunate to, to receive backing from a number of notable composers
1: I was just going to ask mm. who they were because if I'm being completely honest my knowledge of late 19th century composers yeah is for a music student atrocious the only people who I frequently listen to and love of that yeah. time is Elgar so I was just going to ask if you know if they had any connection.
0: Well, you're in luck, Ellie, because actually all of the composers, really, as far as I can work out, that coveted Coleridge Taylor were composers that we should be aware of. So he ended up going to the Royal College of Music to study. Initially, he was there to study violin, but he moved to composition. And his composition teacher at the Royal College of Music was Charles Villiers Stanford. Oh, um, Apparently he was there at a similar time to Vaughan Williams as well. So this, this, this is this kind of golden age of 19th 20th century English music that Stanford was really the person who revolutionized music at this time in England. And actually one of, one of Coleridge Taylor's big breaks came at the hand of Elgar in 1898. Algar was invited to compose a piece of music for the Three Choirs Festival. Now, for those of you who don't know, if you're not a choral buff, the Three Choirs Festival <laughs> is a huge festival that takes place in either Hereford, Worcester or Gloucester Cathedral every summer. And it's a big deal. There's a lot of new music performed.
1: It's like the Met Gala, but for choral music.
0: Yeah, and I actually, I mean, I did a concert at like 2.40pm on a Thursday and Hereford Cathedral was completely rammed with people. Oh, God. Um, so it was a big deal. Anyway, in 1898, he composed a piece for the Three Choirs Festival, which is, is his ballad in A minor. So it's ballade for orchestra. Now, where does he fall? We've had Florence Price, who's influenced by the Europeans, but with a African American slant. We had Germaine mm. Taillefer, who was neoclassical, except when she wasn't. Um, <laughs> and then this ballad in A minor is quite clearly in the romantic idiom it is very much if somebody had said to you this is a piece of music by Tchaikovsky you probably wouldn't bat an eye mm. but I have to say of all the music that we've looked at so far this is the one that I've got that's stuck in my head okay. um, it's about 10 minutes long and it's got these two highly contrasting themes this opening theme in 6A is quite spiky it's full of energy and there's lots of very fast string movement and lots of antiphonal movement between the strings and the and the woodwind parts
1: that sounds quite broad and- William
0: Yeah it, it reminds me a little bit and, and this is going to come to me back in, in the bummer I was trying to work out what music it reminded me of it reminds me a little bit of the last movement of Mahler's first symphony not because of what it sounds like but because of the way it's structured. That's and interesting
1: because we'll come on to that later I suppose.
0: We'll come, yeah we'll come on to that later but what it then transitions into is this really really oh this <laughs> gorgeous melody and it's one of those it's one of those melodies that you just wish you'd written it it's just so sonorous and just it just goes everywhere you want it to go. And it's one of those melodies where you think the conductor can easily say to the strings, let's have a little bit more portamento <laughs> on that note, please. Yeah, you know? a
1: bit more um, and so it,
0: it alternates between the initial theme and then it goes into this slower theme. Then it goes back to the original motif, as it were. And he does some interesting things with it. And then he goes back then into the second theme in a new key. So it's higher up in the string part. And the score is, is even fuller. puller. And you know the bit at the end of Pretty Woman? Yes. <laughs> when he's in the car. Yeah, and the music at the end of Pretty Woman is La Traviata because they went to go and see La Traviata in the film but it has exactly the same impact that that music has at that moment, it's just this swelling, I mean you could easily substitute this for the love theme in Tchaikovsky's Romeo and Juliet and and people would be like okay this is great Can
1: I just pause for a second and say I'm incredibly proud that we've gone four, well not four, we've gone three entire episodes and a few minutes of the fourth before Ben has brought up either Notting Hill Pretty Woman or Or any number of other lovely rom-coms which we all love so well done Ben
0: <laughs> I know Joe. You know, I have to say I'm I'm pretty impressed myself because normally it takes me about 30 seconds to to mention it doesn't it
1: it does well done you <laughs> <laughs>
0: Anyway, we are in this wonderful piece of music. And I think for me, even if this is the only piece of music that I like of Coleridge Taylor's, then he's worth listening. I think it's also worth mentioning at this point about the potential for racial abuse that Coleridge Taylor has. Mm. And this obviously would have happened from when he was very young. And there's a story that apparently when he was at the Royal College of Music, Stanford... Imagine this happening. Imagine being in a room with Stanford. I mean, this is is weird anyway. But like you're in a room with Stanford because he's your composing teacher and then somebody uses a racial slur against you. Horrible. So Stanford turns on the culprit and tells the other student that Coleridge Taylor has more music in his little finger than the other student had in his whole body. Beautiful. And, I, <laughs> and I think it's really interesting, actually, because these composers, Elgar, for recommending him and getting out of his way, Stanford for teaching him, and there are other composers as well, we'll talk about in a, in a moment, who are real agents of his progress they don't Mm. put him into a position where he can have a successful career because he's black no but they see the talent in him and enable him to have the career he should have
1: that he wouldn't be able to have without their gatekeeping
0: in the modern era we talk a lot about gatekeeping and it's a really contentious issue at the moment and how does one be an effective gatekeeper without presuming to be in a position of power of power or authority yeah. and of course naturally Stanford and Elgar are only doing what they would have done for any composer mm. any young composer in Coleridge Taylor's position who they perceive to have sufficient talent I mean it's difficult to tell whether or not their assistance in his career was a conscious one in terms of knowing the fact that it might be more difficult for him to get to places mm. um, in his career but it is interesting because it is proof that you know who you know in the industry is important
1: yes. but also
0: that who you know is nothing without the talent
1: yeah. Yeah, true. That just reminds me of a quote that our head of section at school used to say, which was, hard work beats talent if talent doesn't work hard. And it just reminds me of that because it was only because of his talent combined with these gatekeepers with their keys to open doors that he was able to get as successful as he did. Yeah, He's such a brilliant composer, but we just wouldn't have heard it.
0: No, I think you think you're right. And I think it demonstrates that a gatekeeper... I think we we presume it in the modern era that a gatekeeper is purely a white person being a gatekeeper for a black person but actually yeah. this is as well as being that this is also a gatekeeper being an established successful person being a gatekeeper for a be. young talented person so it's fascinating the effect that these people had on his life and were able to help him forge a career now the ballad in a minor was an immediate success I want to talk about his most famous work, a work that probably most people don't know, but at the time was said to be more popular than Handel's Messiah. Okay. So Hiawatha's Wedding Feast was a 40-minute cantata for chorus, tenor soloist and orchestra, which was based off Longfellow's poem Song for Hiawatha. Mm -hmm. Uh, which was this huge poem and this piece of music is very victorian i can imagine if you were in a choral society in the early 1900s loving this piece of music because yeah. the chorus sings throughout beyond the tennis solo in the middle the chorus sings throughout almost all of it there's lots of good tunes it's fairly diatonic it doesn't take you anywhere particularly harmonically adventurous but it was a huge success a huge success and actually interestingly sir arthur Sullivan, who at the time was really quite ill was able to get the first performance and he's quoted as saying i'm always an ill man now my my boy but I'm coming to hear your music tonight, even if I have to be carried. So there was a real sense of energy around Coleridge Taylor. And I believe it was Parry who referred to the premiere of Hiawatha's Wedding Feast as one of the greatest nights in the history of English music. Wow! So there's this really, really huge moment. And after Coleridge Taylor's death in 1912, this piece was performed in the 1920s at the Royal Albert Hall every year. And the poem depicts Native American life. And so they would put on performances of this piece with costumes, and, and and everything was very elaborate. And it was performed hundreds and hundreds of times, huge, huge deal. And and I think it's important to state that saying that it was more popular than Handel's Messiah at this time, Handel's Messiah is very popular today. We know this, you know. Oh you,
1: yeah, but, it's but every at Christ- the time,
0: at the time, you know, you've got to remember that this is the era in which we had the Great Crystal Palace. Performances of Handel's and Messiah, where yeah, you had choruses, true. thousands of people, and amateur music making was much more a source of entertainment for people than it is today because
1: they didn't have tellys, they didn't they have,
0: have <laughs> tellys, they didn't have radios. They yeah. they may not have had a gramophone, and I think actually the sort of entertainment in people's houses at this point was a piano. People yeah. would get together and make music together, and it's something that obviously people still do, but nowhere near
1: no not to that that extent
0: and so corish taylor's setting of longfellow's poem is a real moment for him because he rides the crest of this performing wave and achieves huge popularity in the day and i think what's more remarkable now is that he's known but not particularly well known but he was so well known and so famous but interestingly didn't make him very much money because he rather famously sold the rights to the piece for £25 and 15 shillings.
1: Oh my gosh, how much money was that?
0: Well, I mean, it was more than £25 is today, but...
1: Still nothing.
0: Still nothing when you consider the size of the work. There were two sequels which finished the setting of the poem, interestingly enough, which were critiqued by Elgar as not as good, but he received £250 for the two sequels, which were more than that was more than twice his annual income at Mm. the time of his death so that was quite a lot of money but he did have to work as a conductor for lots of choral societies and orchestras for the remainder of his very short life because he had a wife and he had uh, two children one of whom he named Hiawatha which is quite interesting
1: yeah I like that
0: yeah it was this huge success but he didn't earn him a great deal of money. So he had to keep on working. And when he died of acute pneumonia in 1912, age 37, the suggestion is that that might well have been being overworked and overworking uh, himself yeah. and, and pushing himself for the family. It's an interesting one. It's a very interesting one. I mentioned Marlowe and we mentioned that this might be a bit of a contestable moment to talk about it. He went to America three times on three tours, and Americans loved him. He didn't receive any of the racial abuse he received in England, in America. He was warmly welcomed. That's
1: um, interesting.
0: Yeah, I think he was invited to meet the president. He had this interesting thing where he conducted black only orchestras, but he was also allowed to conduct white only orchestras. Um, and there, I believe there was even a college tailor. Society. There was a huge amount of buzz around him, particularly yeah. in the American community, which is very interesting. And I think also is that he was interested in his heritage, but he never visited Africa. And I think there was a certain fascination with his heritage and that was partly w- what he enjoyed when he was out in America and meeting mm. americans And he, he set 24 crystals for piano and I believe that he was quoted as saying that he wanted to do what Brahms had done for Hungarian music and what Dvořák had done for Bohemian music. He wanted to do the same for these melodies. And it was interesting actually sort of listening to some of those and comparing what he did to what Florence Price did with some of those melodies yeah. when we looked at in episode one. I'm not sure. This is the thing, is that I very much enjoy some of what I've heard, but then there's other stuff that I'm not so sure about. Mm. Um, but anyway, I'm getting off topic. Is <laughs> that He was referred to when he went on tour to America as the African Mahler.
1: Mm.
0: Now, there's a lot of issues with this. So should we unpack it?
1: let's unpack it i think first of all you you did mention that the final movement of the ballade sounded like marla one
0: yeah so that it's the final movement of marla one where you've got this ferocious opening melody which is contrasted with the second theme of the, the last movement if anybody's performed marla one it's this really sumptuous melody and it reminded me of the contrast between these those two but not mm-hmm. the same style i mean broadly romantic yes but very different marla's very different to what courage taylor's do
1: yeah definitely so i personally saw mm. no parallels between courage taylor and marla but
0: yeah exactly that's,
1: that's just me i'll let you say what you want to say about that
0: well, no I, I completely agree with you because i think that you know you know when you're listening to marla marla has a very distinctive quality it's it's very earthy and very central european you
1: know very you, very german kind of rooted in yeah
0: the... it, it sounds like you're on a swiss alp when you're listening to him.
1: yeah
0: and you've got the matterhorn is behind you and there are cows with bells on them and and <laughs> and, 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 and there's a very distinctive woodwind sound with Marla, which is difficult to put your finger on but it, it's you know when you're listening to him you you can't confuse him i feel like you might be able to confuse you might be able to confuse brahms tchaikovsky or dvorak if you're not fully aware of the this kind of minutiae of their individual. Yeah,
1: style. I agree. Anyway, that's Marla.
0: But Marla, I think I'm trying to work out what it is. Wh- what is it that that made people call him this? Is it because obviously he visited America in the early 1900s and this was a time, it, it's funny, he has a similar trajectory to Marla in the sense that he, you know, he dies quite young and he's writing at the same time. So those are two parallels, mm. similarities, but compositionally, they're very different. And I think it it speaks a lot to to what we were talking about in this, the Germaine Taifer episode about how as historians and performers, we always equate or compare composers that we're unfamiliar with with composers that we are familiar with. Yeah. Composers that we kind of accept without, almost without thought, you know, we, we might not question the authority of some of the composers in the canon, but we do question, whenever we are, you know, talking about new composers, we do question whether, whether they're any good. And I think realistically, it's not a bad thing to question whether they're any good. It's, it's just a bad thing that we don't do, do it so much with the composers that just we just sort of take for granted as being, in inverted commas, good.
1: I mean, I, I can say for one but because I'm just a bit of a nightmare, I think you'll agree, and as will all of my friends, that I spend my entire life saying that I don't like composers that everyone else likes, and I forever question why people like them.
0: I mean, um, I mean, actually, you have a problem with Bach, which is probably we could (laughs) could spend another half hour on this, and maybe there's a reason why we're called down with the patriarchy. But
1: I have no issue with Bach. I just have an issue with the St. John's Passion. But but, that's a very passionate subject that we will not get onto, Ben.
0: (laughs) You know, we might have to do an episode on that at some point. Um, (laughs) But referring to him as the African Mahler, you know, as if Mahler is a sort of, almost as an adjective of yeah. and and also in one breath you're comparing him to somebody else, and also defining him by his race.
1: It's a bit like what we were talking about with Dan last week when he said that we often find ourselves deifying composers and holding <laughs> all other in inverted commas composers to to a standard that that can't possibly be reached. So it's like he will never quite be Mahler. So let's call him the African martyr instead.
0: Yeah, and I, I get that. I imagine what, what they were trying to do was up a bit of hype, mm. sort of a bit like, I don't know, somebody is this generation's William Shakespeare or whatever. You know, yeah. it's, it's a mode of comparison that we use in culture all the time and, and, and often perfectly reasonable. It, it's sort of shorthand to make your point quickly, but it's, it's also a really contentious one when you're using their race or their gender or their sexuality. Exactly. to, to use that comparison. And of course, you couldn't refer to somebody in that way today. Them. No,
1: absolutely
0: not. No. Um, but it's very, very interesting. So Coleridge Taylor, he's writing at this time in English music where a lot of great composers are writing. He he manages to write successfully in both the Romantic European idiom, but also writes successfully in the Victorian English idiom, particularly with these big choral works. Yeah, I,
1: definitely.
0: I mean, personally speaking, it's not my music, like it's not really music that I would that I would be very enthusiastic about but it's music that I could happily listen to because it is it's very well crafted and I think that I'm able to separate my personal feelings about whether I actually like it versus whether I think it's good I think it's it's
1: objectively good good. Mm.
0: yeah I think it's good but I don't necessarily think I would listen to it but then at the same time I probably wouldn't spend my time listening to a lot of those sort of great Victorian works which sometimes just feel a little bit overblown and I think uh,
1: they're they're what we tend to call choral bangers you kind of whack them out for a big concert but when you perform them all the time it's just exhausting
0: yeah yeah exactly but I I think think it's a it's a fascinating story it's a fascinating example of gatekeepership on behalf of the composers that were around him it's a tragically short life it's a tragically normal life in the sense that, you know, providing for his family. However, when he died, there was a fund set up, and I think they raised £1,440 for his family, which was a huge amount of money. That that
1: is a lot of money. I actually, um, I worked out a calculator from the National Archives. So what year would that have been? 1912. 19.12. So I'll do 19.10. And we're looking at 1,400 pounds.
0: Yeah, 1,400 pounds.
1: Okay. Ready? Yeah. Oh, my Lord. So in 2017, that would have been worth approximately 109,441 pounds and eight pence. And it it then says what you could buy in 19.10 with that. So you could buy 50 horses, 144 cows, 2,592 sheep, and that would be the equivalent. Of a skilled tradesman working four thousand days, four
0: thousand days, four
1: thousand days of work.
0: Four thousand days is what ten years. Yeah. Wow. So I mean, and, and also that um, uh, Corish Taylor's widow received a, a yearly one hundred pound pension from King George V. There was a pension oh. scheme set up um, by the royal family that that she received from the crown. Um, so, so you know that obviously this is the thing: is that this is proof that his his uh, popularity at the time was real. People loved his music enough to generously give money to the family to support them to the tune of a hundred thousand pounds in in today's cash. Yeah, which means I love that. They could have bought a hell of a lot of sheep. I like that. They, I like that they use sheep,
1: yeah,
0: <laughs> cattle, so horses, as opposed to they could have bought. I know a semi-detached <laughs> house, Wimbledon, or you know, I don't know. Um, uh,
1: I I like that. It also does um, how how many how many quarters of wheat you could buy, but I mean, I don't think right. anybody really needs to know that. No, um, but no, I I think personally, I I so I was listening to the clarinet quintet in F sharp minor, and I just kept thinking, who can I do this with? I just kept going. Okay, so which violinist, cellist, clarinettist do I know? And then I suddenly thought, actually, we're in a pandemic; no one can do anything. But no. I um I I I did think, when can I perform this and with whom? Because I really liked it. Yeah. And it's funny when you were thinking uh, when you were saying about the choral societies in yeah. uh, the early twentieth century, who would perform that um, regularly? I just thought. You run a choir, Mr. Richards. Ben is the, are are you director or conductor? Conductor. Conductor of Royal Holloway Founders Choir. Go and give them a listen. Go give them a follow on Facebook. Yeah. And and I thought you could be your own gatekeeper and maybe Samuel Coleridge-Taylor might be popping up in one of Founders Choir concerts before the end of your time at
0: Holloway? Well, well I mean, I would if, if his music didn't require 200 singers and an orchestra. Um, oh, darn.
1: <laughs>
0: but I mean, I, mean I, need to, I need to do a bit more digging on him and see if there's any kind of anthems that aren't quite so massive because I would be really interested. And I think, actually, you saying about who can I play this with, for me, often, if I, the way I know that I really like a piece of music is when I want to get a copy of the score put my headphones on and pretend to conduct it in my room. And that was what I immediately did with this piece. I found, I found the score for the ballad in A minor. I got my headphones on because I was just like, this is brilliant music. And, and I was so, I was so happy that I'd found it. And I, I do you know, I just think as well that, you know, Coleridge Taylor is one of our, I'm not going to say black Britons, one of our great Britons, Yeah, you know, he's one of our great cultural, should be one of our great cultural icons and at the time was despite you know obvious connotations of racism that would have persisted you know at that time Mm
1: -hmm. and i
0: just think you know we we, he should really be celebrated And, and you know there's a lot there's lots of issues in the present day about british patriotism but i would say that you know this is a fantastic icon for britain in the early 20th century you know he's he's got this brilliant combination of, you know, British culture and African culture and African heritage and British heritage. And he's gone through the ranks of great British composers and been helped by them and been lauded by them. And he's found popularity among the great British public. And, and the now <laughs> people don't really know who he is. And I think that's a real shame.
1: I I actually so my dad is a musician. He's a very talented jazz musician also feel free to check him out and he well he asked who we were going to be looking at this week and I said Samuel Coleridge Taylor and he said ah he spearheaded classical music in Britain written by black people and I thought that was really interesting that he knew who he was and I'd never heard of him and yeah um, I I liked that I don't know if it's a generational thing but I think um, yeah I think
0: that was my first thought it might be a generational thing I think the nice thing is, is it's important to know who the person behind the notes is, but also it's nice to close your eyes and think, I have no idea what the colour of the skin of this person is, and it Could doesn't matter. No,
1: exactly. Yeah, I, I love that. I think that's a really good point for us to finish on, so we don't keep rambling on <laughs> for these poor people who are thinking, God, what have we to finish? God,
0: yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. To our to our four viewers, as I as I. As I <laughs> I I always I was I always like the thought that you know even even if this ever became ridiculously popular that that, that would be always the, the the suggestion that there was only four people in <laughs> anyway we have to do our we have to do our thing. We have to tinder our way through uh, this the end of this. Are we um which way are we swiping?
1: I uh, should we do it at the same time? This is gonna be horrible for the listener.
0: So we are three, two, two one, one. Right. swiping right.
1: Yeah Woo! Here we go. Cool. So, so far, can we just quickly list our little canon? So we've yes. got Florence Price, Germaine Fair, not Dan Elphick, but then we've got our brand new Samuel Corridge-Taylor. So yeah. woo! Let's go new canon.
0: So yeah, go go and listen to Corridge-Taylor. Check out the clarinet quintet. Check out the ballad in A minor. Check out, if you've got a little bit more time, the Eowath's Wedding Feast. Go and find his music. Go and read about his life. There's plenty of information online.
1: There's a really, really, really good video of an RCM quartet playing with one of their clarinetists, playing the clarinet quintet. And in uh, between R- each uh, the movement... the RCM,
0: where he studied as well. Exactly. That's
1: great. And in between each movement, they do a little chat about him and his impact and his life. And it's really interesting. Go and have a watch of that. And when you've done all that, go and follow us at Pod on Instagram. Send yeah. us any comments, likes, questions preferably positive would be great on anchor.fm or dm us on instagram even if you just want to tell us that
0: you even if you just want to tell us that you like our hair
1: yeah that'd be great
0: (laughs) yeah Um, (laughs) compliment us we're so we're vain people
1: we are so vain yeah Um, side note just so you know a bit more about ben and i for our birthdays we both got each other canvases of our faces yeah um, yes. ellie
0: ellie ellie painted me as a 19th century russian field marshal
1: i did so should we we'll will finish there
0: <laughs> i think we should finish there because this is this is getting yeah we're just getting out of hand it's getting they're getting longer
1: <laughs> so thank you for listening and we'll see you next week
0: take care bye